we begin this week's uh, message time, just a reminder of the overview of what we're looking at. We're talking about the coming of the Savior. And as we celebrate the coming of the Savior, it's not just Christmas Day. When we celebrate, it's strange how we celebrate Christmas as a long season, right? Because we're celebrating the Advent, the coming of Christ. It's much bigger than one day, one small holiday. We're talking about God becoming flesh. It takes some time to let that sink in. So as we work through the Sundays of Advent, we're using these great historical hymns to help us think through the truth of our Savior who came for us. And over the, these four weeks, we'll look at four different truths. Last week when we were together, we lit the first candle of Advent. Maybe we won't do it this week. And we remembered with that candle that Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves. And we talked about the nature and character of God, His greatness and His holiness, who He is as a person being beyond what we're capable of imagining. And our sin permanently and irrevocably separating us from God. And yet, in His sovereign grace, in His mercy and love toward us, He sent the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, to pay the price for our sin. Jesus died in our place, paying that wage, that penalty, that that price of sin, which is death. The problem with us trying to pay that is it's a one-time deal. Jesus, having life in Himself, was able to die in our place. And paying that price for us, He gave us the opportunity to have permanent eternal, abundant, overflowing life with Him. Life that starts now and lasts forever. That's the glory of Christmas. It's not a baby in a manger. It's a Savior who came for us because God so loved the world. Today, we're moving into the promise of a Savior, that glorious song of old, and we're recognizing with a second candle as we remember the Advent. Now last week this candle fell off the pedestal, so I'm really hoping it doesn't do that with fire on it today. We're recognizing that Jesus came to save us because God keeps His promises. That's going to be really important for us to, to look at as we walk through this. Because we're not really great with trust, are we? How many of you have a hard time with trust? Anybody? Raise your hand if you have a hard time with trust. If you don't have a hard time with trust, you probably have never had anybody lie to you. You probably never had anybody break a promise or disappoint you. And you may probably be less than a year old. Because trust is hard. Why? Why is it so hard to trust people? You know, don't you? Because they keep letting you down all the time. So why is it so hard to trust God? Same reason. Because people keep letting you down all the time. You know who lets us down the most? It's not the politicians. They make promises all the time, don't they? You know, Roosevelt said, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I will not send your boys into any foreign wars. And then we had World War II. The late President George H.W. Bush famously said, read my lips, no new taxes. Now we had new taxes. We're used to that, aren't we? We're used to politicians making promises. We don't even get our hopes up most of the time. No, it's not the politicians. How about your spouse? Very often in our world, the promises we make at the altar, they don't even last to the first anniversary. So many people that you and I know, maybe even some of you, spend more time planning the wedding than we actually spend married. That's hard. 
people let you down. We break our promises. Well, it's not your spouse. How about your parents? Any of your parents let you down? If your parents didn't disappoint you, if your parents didn't let you down, you didn't have any parents. Uh, I've got five kids, and I have let down every single one of them. I have done my best. At least I think I have. Sometimes we think we do our best and we really don't. And I've made promises that I have broken. I've made commitments that I haven't followed through on. I've done things that were not reflective of the perfect and holy character of God. My parents disappointed me. Their parents disappointed them. My children, as they have children, disappoint their children. we got a pretty good tradition going. But it's not our parents. The person I am most often disappointed with, and if we're honest, this is true of all of us, is the person I see in the mirror every day. You see, that's the person I know best. And I make myself promises all the time, don't you? I'll do better. I'll never do that again. Until next time. I'll never lose my temper with my child. How many parents have ever said that? I'll never lose my temper with my child, you bunch of liars. The only way to not lose your temper with a child is to not have children. It's just a reality. I would never say that to my wife. And then I hear those words come out of my mouth. (laughs) I will work out every day this year. I will lose weight. I will pick it. I will not eat another brownie. I don't even make that lie. Just forget about it. Guys, we disappoint ourselves because it's our character. It's who we are. We are sinful people. That's the problem that we have. We are permanently and irrevocably separated from God because in our very core, in our soul's genome, if you will, we are sinners. We're not like God. We're not in ourselves holy. We're broken. And that cycle continues because in our broken nature, our fallen nature, as theologians would call it, we make broken, fallen, sinful choices. And we act out of who we are. But we have this tension in us because we're created in the image of God. And so everything in us longs for that. This is why heroic stories are popular We've forever, as long as there have been stories, we've loved heroes. It's not, it didn't start with Stan Lee in Marvel Comics. Of course not, because Superman started in 1938, so you know it before that. Why did the Greeks have the mythology that they had? Because there's something in us that longs for the character of God. It's the image of God, the imago Dei in us. And yet we're broken and we fail to meet that image. So we have this constant tension. I want to be better than I am. I have a hunger for eternity. And yet I'm limited and I'm sinful. Constantly. Constantly in tension. Making promises to myself. Making promises to others. And yet failing to complete the task. This is a conundrum. I I won't have you turn there because it's not part of our our manuscript today. But check out Romans 7 sometime. You might want to jot that down. Romans 7 is Paul's wrestling with himself. as He he says, man, I I see the stuff I want to do. I know the right thing to do, and I just can't pull the trigger. And and I know the stuff I don't want to do that I hate. I hate it with all of who I am, and yet I still find myself there. What is wrong with me? Or as he puts it, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
This is the tension that we live in in this sinful and fallen world. This is why it's so hard to have faith. We all talk about it. And at some point on your journey, if you haven't already, you will wrestle with, how can my faith be so weak? How can I get more faith? How can I grow stronger in my faith? Why do I struggle in my faith? Because faith is trusting. And trust inevitably, inevitably, trust relies upon evidence. That's why today as we walk through this Advent series, we'll be looking at the promise of the Savior. And here's our core reality. I mentioned it earlier. Jesus came to save us because God keeps His promises. Say it with me. Jesus came to save us because God keeps His promises. It's in God's nature to make promises, to keep promises, to use those promises for a purpose. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of that, the culmination. It's a beautiful picture when we see in Colossians 1, as Paul describes Christ as God, the invisible God made visible to us. In Him, the fullness of the deity is pleased to dwell. We get to see who God is through His promises fulfilled in Christ. Let's walk through this together. First, we need to recognize that God makes promises to His people. God makes promises to His people. Now, this may seem like a a small thing, but it isn't. It's not small at all. See, we have this tendency to think, well, if people break promises, the simple thing is don't make any promises. Right? So, I'm going to not promise my kids anything. I'm not going to tell them, because if I don't tell them, if I don't say I promise, well then, they can't hold me to it, right? If I don't get married, then I can't get divorced. This is the logic that we have. You know, you've heard it, you've felt it. This is the reality that we live in. We come up with these solutions that aren't really solutions. Why? Because promises are implied in our human relationships. You don't have to stand and say, I promise, for it to actually be a promise. Before I ever got to the altar, I had made a commitment in my heart and in my relationship that I would spend my life being the best husband I could to my wife. Now, I hadn't said those words necessarily, We hadn't stood up and solemnized that with a vow. That's an important thing to do. But the commitment and the implication of that happened long before we ever got to that place or we wouldn't have gotten to that place. There are promises inherent in citizenship. There are promises inherent in friendship. Certain expectations that we have. Why? Because it's God's nature in us to make promises and to expect promises, to expect fulfillment. I don't have to promise my children that I will feed and clothe and shelter you for that to be an implicit promise, right? We all can recognize that. Amen? Is that true? Is that true of parents? It's your job, it's your responsibility, it is the promise you make when you bring that child into the world that you will do all that you can to feed and clothe and shelter them. There's a bigger promise that we don't talk about because we're not conscious of it. But the greater promise is that I will teach you about God. These are implicit promises. But God makes promises to His people For many reasons. The biggest reason, well, before I get into the reasons, let me talk through some examples of it. Just in case we're not sure, God makes promises to His people. For example, Abraham. Turn, if you would, to Genesis. We'll do most of our scripture turning here at this point, and then we'll do a little more as we go along. And we'll probably do some that I don't intend to do because I get excited. 
We're going to look at Genesis. If you're not sure where that is, it's at the beginning. Genesis means beginning. So if it were anywhere else, that would be kind of confusing. Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. You all recognize Abraham. Maybe you've not read your Bible, but you recognize him from the song, Father Abraham had many sons, right? This promise here is where the song comes from. Check it out. Verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, this is before he became Abraham. He gets a name change later on, so he becomes the artist formerly known as Abram. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And go to the land I will show you. We're going to look at the next couple of parts here. But already, there is a challenge that's super freaky and a promise that goes along with it. The challenge is, here's what I expect you to do. I expect you to leave everything that you know, to pull up roots, leave your family, and go where I'm going to show you. The, the promise here is that God's going to show him. Now, he doesn't say, I promise, does he? I, I didn't put my hand on a Bible. I didn't sign a note that said this. But when God speaks, his word is his bond. Go to the place I will show you. Implicitly, the promise is, I will show you. But God is saying, go, and I'm not telling you where right now. You just go. I'll show you on the way. How many things does he do that with us about? I just expect you to obey. I'm not giving you all the details right now. But God, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't care. Just follow me. I'll show you where to go. The promise continues. Here's, here's the covenant that God makes with, with Abram. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there's a promise that God makes to Abram. It's an interesting thing. Abram's not asking for a promise. It seems to be sort of out of the blue. God in his sovereignty says... Abram, I got a calling for you. I got a promise for you. He didn't work for it. He didn't apply for it. He didn't, he didn't you know, earn it or deserve it. God calls Abram, this individual dude, out of this pagan land and says, You're mine. I'm going to do great things. Get on board. God makes promises to Moses, for example. Um, flip the page to the right. We're going to go to the book of Exodus, the very next book. This is long after, uh, long after Abram, even after he becomes Abraham, and after his sons and many generations have passed. We get to the book of Exodus. Take a look at chapter 6. There's so much. You know, we could go through every book of the Bible and almost every chapter of the Bible and find promise after promise after promise that God makes. I just want to show you these because they lead us someplace. But in these promises, it may, it may be God just saying, I will. It may be God saying, I promise. I promise on oath. I swear by myself. When God says these things, He is speaking these promises to people. And they point to who He is. But in Exodus chapter 6, take a look at verses 6 through 8. God makes a promise to Moses, but his promise to Moses is for the Israelite nation as well. So he makes a promise to Abraham, to Moses, to the nation of Israel. Here's what he says. Therefore, say to the Israelites, man, I want to back up. Every time I see therefore, I want to back up. Understand that there's a context. Whenever you see that word therefore, it means in light of what I just said, Let's back up to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, I will drive them out of this country. So he's making a promise here to, to Moses. You're going to see what I'm going to do. The Israelites, as you know, were in captivity. They were slaves in Egypt. 
Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. God says, you're going to let him go. And if you're not going to let him go, I'm going to make you want to let him go. And he brings the plagues. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 2, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I'm going to not preach a sermon on that, even though I really want to. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as, as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they had lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. So God's promise to Abram is still in effect. All these generations later, to this nation that he would provide, uh, that he would produce through him. Check this out, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. This is the heart of the promise. God says to Moses and to the Israelites, I will make you mine, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring <clears throat> excuse me I will bring you to the land I swore to, with uplifted hand to give to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob I will give it to you as a possession I am the Lord everything God does hinges on that I am the Lord I am who I am this is my name my identity my nature my character all the promises of God point to his nature and character. They rely on that. They rest on that. He makes a promise to David. This becomes really important as God refines the funnel of these promises in the covenant. He makes a promise to Abraham. He actually made a promise back in the garden in Genesis 3 that we talked about last week. As he's cursing the serpent for his role in bringing sin into the system, God actually implicitly makes a promise that he would bring a serpent crusher to destroy the serpent, to wipe out sin. Everything else in the Bible is following that promise, to see the serpent crusher coming. He makes a promise to Abraham that this serpent crusher would come through his seed, that all people would be blessed by him, that he would become a great nation. Then now we get to this place with David. And he's narrowing it down a little bit more. He makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn to the right some more. We go through the first five books of the, the history primeval and the beginning of Israel. And we see the law laid out. But now we get past that time in Egypt and they're in the promised land. And the next many books here become the history of Israel from Joshua and Judges and and we see First and Second Samuel, which is all one book, and the Chronicles and the Kings. And it plays out the story of what God is doing in Israel. But in Second Samuel, chapter 7, he makes a promise to David. Now, it's very interesting to see these promises that God makes to David because he has made promises to David about the kingdom before he was ever king. So David had to live in the shadow of the promise that he would become king for years, for years, before it ever came to pass. Keep that in mind as we look at all of God's promises. Keep it in mind as you look at God's role, His promises in your own life. Sometimes we don't see those things come to pass for a really long time. Because while God makes promises, unless He gives you a date, which He doesn't do very often, it's in his timing, not in yours. David, in chapter 7 now, is king. And we're going to pick up, uh, man, I, I'm going to pick up with, with verse 1. We're going to focus in on 4 and following, 4 to 17. But, <clears throat> but we're going to pick up with verse 1 just so you get some context for it. After the king, David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, the prophet is the mouthpiece of God. That's the person God speaks through. 
here I am living in a palace. This, uh, David said this to Nathan, by the way. Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Here's what God says through Nathan to David. David was speaking to Nathan on his own authority. He's frustrated because, man, and it sounds humble, doesn't it? I'm, I'm living in a great palace as the king, but God's living in a tent. It was, they still had the tabernacle. They didn't have a temple. But God told them the tent to make. David's getting his eyes off of what God has for him. But check out how God responds. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? <clears throat> Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. <clears throat> Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who am I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. <laughs> this is so cool. So David's going to do something for God, right? And God says, like I need a house? Really? I didn't ask anybody else for a house as we're going along. You think you can give me a house? You can give me something that I couldn't give myself? Come on, David. David's telling God what he's going to do. And God says... Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something greater than you even thought about. I'm going to do something you didn't ask for. Because our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty said. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. Verse 9, I have, get, I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You want to build me a house? Let me show you a house, David. It's not built out of cedar. It's bigger. Verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Speaking of Solomon in this particular instance. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon didn't live forever. But there's a promise to David that his offspring will sit on the throne forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, speaking of Solomon, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So as we look at these verses, uh, just a little side note for you to keep in mind, because it can seem a little confusing as we read it. Uh, theologians uh, would refer to this as the law of double fulfillment. That when we see these Old Testament prophecies, these Old Testament promises, there is generally, very often, an immediate literal fulfillment that takes place in the, uh, in the earthly kingdom. For example, the prophecies of Antichrist were fulfilled in Israel in Antiochus IV's reign, Antiochus the Great, he called himself. Humble guy. Uh, and, and yet those greater eternal principles, the eternal kingdom, will see the final fulfillment of that yet to come. We see here the prophecy that is combined. There is a law of double fulfillment. And God prophesies what will happen in Solomon, but he also prophesies what will happen in Messiah. 
We know this because by God's inspired, uh, by God's inspiration, the writers of scriptures refer back to this promise. They continue to refer to this promise about the Messiah who would come, and the New Testament writers refer to this about the Messiah who has come. So we see that it points to the Messiah as well. So he makes promises to Abraham, Moses, Israel, David. And maybe we forget sometimes about the promises that he makes later. We look at the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah chapter 9 is a great one. We'll see a lot of that. We'll sing about those things. For unto us a child is born, right? And we've talked about those previously, and we will talk about them so many more times. But in the New Testament, prophecies also take place. Promises of God. Turn to Luke chapter 1. You Hopefully, if you've been with us, you know where Luke is. If you don't, it's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. We get past the Old Testament. And a lot of the names of the prophets in the Old Testament, as you go through those books, will seem unfamiliar to you. And unless, you're, unless you're one of Todd's grandkids, they seem to have names like that. At least the Grahams do. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 1. Let's pick up with verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. We could pick out so many more stories. Even just from this, uh, from this nativity narrative, as we see the advent here in Luke 1 and 2, <clears throat> promises, promises, promises that God continues to make and keep. But notice this one, starting in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You may remember earlier in this chapter, if you were with us for our Luke series earlier this year, <clears throat> that... Uh, Elizabeth is the wife of Zechariah, the priest. And she was too old to have babies, but God promised her that she would give birth to a son who would be named John and would be the forerunner of the Messiah. A little while after that, an angel appeared to her relative, a young woman, Mary, you might be familiar with her, to say that she would give birth to the Messiah himself sired by the Holy Spirit of God, not by a human individual. And as they are working through the, the, all of the things that go along with pregnancy, these women are far apart geographically. Mary takes a trip now, later on in the pregnancy, to visit Elizabeth. She gets there, and as we just read, when she shows up, Unborn baby John leaps with joy in the womb at the presence of Messiah. Little mind-blowing, whole lot of sermons here about the sanctity of life that, that we could get into. But check this out. 42, in a loud voice she exclaimed, Elizabeth exclaimed to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me. She gets it, right? Baby's not even born yet. She's calling him Lord. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she, I would underline this, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. In other words, blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has promised. And Mary said, my soul glorifies, magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. I'd love to continue reading because it's just so awesome, but... Our point is already found. God makes promises to His people. Now when we see that God makes these promises, this matters because God's promises point to His nature and character. 
God's promises point to His nature and character. This is important for us. Why is it so hard to trust God? Anytime we have a hard time trusting anyone or anything, it goes back to our understanding, our intimacy with, and understanding of their nature and character. I've used the illustration before of my daughter Emma when she was young, and I could use all of my children at some point with this, but she's the youngest, so she gets to get used. And she's a girl. The girls get used for good examples. The boys get used for bad examples. That's how it tends to go, isn't it? Right? <clears throat> but so many times I've shared with you before how when my daughter Emma was young and much smaller, she's heavier now, she would jump to me from the stairs. And then she'd climb a little higher and she'd jump to me from the stairs. And she'd climb a little higher and she'd jump to me from the stairs. She'd even jump to me from a tree branch because she knew that I would catch her. She knew that one, I was able to, and two, I was willing to. And she trusted me not to fail her. She wouldn't do that with everybody. She may not know your ability to catch her. She may not know your willingness to catch her. It, her faith in me was a function of her knowledge and intimacy with my nature and character. God's promises point us there. Just a, a few quick scriptures. Go to the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms. I'm going to have you find the easiest psalm to find because it's the biggest one. Psalm 119. In fact, there are so many verses in this chapter alone that bring us to this point. But I want you to see verse 41 and verse, 40, verse 76 is uh, almost a repetition of it. But uh, Psalm 119, verse 41. One of the things I just absolutely love about this psalm is it is a love song to the Word of God. It's David saying how desperately he loves God's promises and God's laws. We see this pointing to God's character in verse 41 as he writes, May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. The fact that God promises and the things that God promises point to the fact that He loves and He wants to save. Turn all the way toward the back of the book, not all the way to the back, but toward the back to the book of Hebrews. In your New Testament, it's the last fairly large book before you get to Revelation. Everything else is small in between. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10. Now throughout the Psalms, and while you're looking this up, I'll just, I'll just uh, freestyle a little bit here for you. Throughout the book of Psalms, we see the psalmist, whether it's David or the sons of Korah, whoever it is that is writing these Psalms, in almost every one, we see an appeal to the character of God. And one of the themes that we see over and over in the Psalms is the same theme we see over and over in the prophets. It's the same thing that God brings out about Himself from Genesis on. It's the character quality of faithfulness. Faithfulness means when I give a promise, when I give my word, you can trust it. I will not fail. I will always be true. The Marine Corps picks up on that. Semper Fidelis. Always faithful. Here we see this in the Lord as well. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Oh, man. I've got to read the whole thing. No, I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is, what's the word? Faithful. Say it again, that wasn't convincing. Faithful. That's a little better. So God is faithful, therefore we trust His promises. It points to His character. And notice also in, in Hebrews 10.23, that because God is faithful, we can hold unswervingly to what? What does it say in the verse? To hope. Because God promises and He is faithful, we are able to cling to it. Note, God's promises give us hope. 
God's promises point to His nature and character. God's promises give us hope. Because He is faithful, I can hope in Him. That's what Job said. In the midst of his horrible situation, with everything falling apart, no answers, God's not telling him what's going on. I pray and I pray and I just don't get any answers. It's like the the sky is closed to me. And in the midst of that, Job says, even though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. How can he say that? How can he say, I will hope in God when everything is going wrong? Because God is faithful. And I can trust his nature and character. God makes promises to his people. We'll move a little more quickly from this point forward. God makes promises to his people. Secondly, we see God keeps his promises to his people. Every promise that God makes, he keeps. Let's go back to the book of Joshua. Not quite as far back as Exodus. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. There we go. When you get to Joshua, turn to chapter 21. Joshua's getting toward the end of his life, and in a couple of chapters he'll say the same thing again as he says, "I'm, I'm old. I'm about to end my days here. And go home to my fathers. But you can count on this. The same thing he says here in 21 verse 45. Not one. Not one. Say that with me. Not one. Of all the promises. I'm sorry. Of all the Lord's good promises. I got ahead of myself in memorizing. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. He will appeal to that again. How many of God's promises failed? Not one. Not a single promise. Why is it so hard to trust people? Because our promises fail. Why is it so hard to trust God? Because we so often look to people, including ourselves, rather than to the evidence of God's historical keeping of His promises. Think about it just logically for a moment. Why is so much of the Bible history? Why is so much of the Old Testament the history of what God does in Israel? So that Israel, and now us, now we, can see that God makes promises and keeps His promises. We see it over and over and over. As I mentioned before, trust requires, on a base level, evidence. When I married my wife, I knew, I didn't think, I didn't guess, I knew she would keep her vows because I had evidence in her character. I had seen it in action. We hadn't even known each other that long, and truthfully, I could have married her sooner, except we were just kids. The reality of it is, her character was established through the evidence of her actions. Therefore, I could trust her. Now, if I had been burned before, if I had trusted someone at that level and been let down, it would be harder, wouldn't it? Say amen if you know it would be harder. Say amen if you've been there before. Once bitten, twice shy, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, I'm burning the whole house down. (laughs) Just kidding. No violence, no arson. The reality of the matter is we get bothered by this because we expect character. We expect more than this. God delivers. Stop looking around and start looking up. When we get our focus into God's word and onto the evidence of how he has behaved in the past, it gives us reason to trust him in the future. Not one of God's promises have failed. Oh man, I just really want to read the scripture. 
In Numbers, you can write this down, Numbers 23, verse 19. There are others, but I'm just going to have you look at this. Numbers 23, 19. I'm having a Toy Story moment. Monsters, Inc., not Toy Story. It's Pixar either way. We see that in this, in this reality, it's impossible for God to lie. Moses writes in the book of Numbers 23.19 that God is not like us. He doesn't change his mind. God doesn't say something and not follow through. No, we're going to read it. Numbers 23. You know, it's too important for you to hear me say it. You've got to see what God says. The things that matter most, we need to actually see in God's word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I promise I'm only going to read this verse. I promise. Watch me keep my promise here. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And he stopped because he kept his promise. <laughs> now listen, I'm going to I'm going off script far too often in this message, but there's too many things we got to talk about. Good parents keep their promises to their kid, including promises to uphold a standard. I don't need to yell and shout and scream to discipline my child. I need to have a standard and stick with it. That's how I reflect the character of God. Is that easy? Tell me, is that easy? Yeah. Heavens no. And there are lots of extenuating circumstances that can make it very, very difficult. But the reality is we reflect God's character when we keep our promises without even making promises a big deal. This is why Jesus said not to swear by things. It's not a matter of, you know, hey, you know, don't make promises. That's really what he's saying. Don't swear by heaven, by earth, by... You know, by, by your head, because you even no matter what you do, you can't change one uh, hair on your head from black to white or white to black, unless you're a woman and have hair color. But not in its natural thing. You can't do that. You have no control over these things. So stop swearing about these things. Just let your word stand. Say yes, mean yes. Say no, mean no. That's how we reflect God's character. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? No, God, is, it's impossible for him to lie. David says the same thing. Paul repeats it in his letter to Titus. God keeps his promises to his people. God's promises rest on his nature and character. God's promises rest on his nature and character. He makes promises to his people and they point to his nature and character. He keeps his promises to his people and they rest on his nature and character. He's not like us. God is omnipotent. He is sovereign. That was his entire message to Job. Job, who do you think I am? Do you think I'm like you? Do you think I'm human? Do you think we're peers? Because we're not. I created all of this. When I say it, that's how it is. That's the reality. There are two opinions in the universe that matter. God's opinion, because that is reality, and your opinion, because that determines what you're going to do about God's opinion. The only two opinions that matter. God keeps His promises to His people. God's promises rest on His nature and character. God doesn't lie, can't lie, is able to fulfill. Therefore... God's promises give us confidence. God's promises give us confidence. We can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because of the nature and character of God. Because we know He can't lie. Because we know, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Therefore, we can have confidence. 
Why do we lack confidence in God? Again, for exactly as we've been saying, because we see how everyone around us breaks promises. He does not. We have to choose to trust Him. And as we choose to trust Him, based on the evidence of His Word, based on the evidence of His actions in the past, then we can begin to learn how to trust Him and be confident in who He is, even when we can't see how the circumstances can possibly change. In the midst of our darkness, we can trust that the sun is still shining. That's the reality of God. Lastly, we see God uses His promises. <clears throat> he uses His promises to His people. God uses His promises to His people. Now, we could stick in there, God plans His promises. God intends His promises. God purposes His promises. I know we can because I wrestled with all those. But ultimately, what we see is God uses His promises to His people. Now, there are a lot of promises that God makes. And the beauty of God's promises is they contrast so perfectly with God's warnings. When He makes promises to Israel, as we read earlier, that you will be my people, I will be your God, it comes also with the warning. If, with the condition, if you keep my words. If you don't, then you're not part of this promise. That's what Paul wrote. Not everybody who is of Israel is actually Israel. Not everyone who is born from Abraham's line is actually part of the promise. Because if you're rejecting what God says, then this isn't for you. You've chosen to be outside of it. You've chosen to live like a Gentile. And God's warnings to the Gentile nations, those who are outside of Israel, is that you get what you got coming to you. And the day will come when all sin will be judged. Everyone. God's promises are in contrast to His warnings. They rest on His nature. His warnings are about those things that are contrary to His nature. But understand, if God doesn't lie, if God keeps His promises, that same reality applies to His warnings. When I tell my child, you must stop this behavior or, then I need to follow up on the or. God always does. Always does. This is why we need a Savior. God uses His promises to His people. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but God says to His people in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. These are the promises that God has. I know the plans I have for you. These plans that I have for you are for your good, not for your harm. What makes this very interesting is this, this statement that God makes, the promise that He has a plan, that He is using comes right after God tells them you're going to be in exile. You're, the, the bad guys are going to come. They're going to wipe you all out. People are going to die. You're going to be carried off into Babylon. I'm taking you out of the land I promised you. You failed to heed the warnings. Therefore, you're going to be captured by godless wretches. God uses these promises. And He sends messages to the world around us through them as He sends messages to us. As God reveals His character to His people, He also reveals His character to the outside observer, to the onlooker. As He shows Himself to Israel, Israel is called apart from the Gentile nations, and the Gentile nations get to look at it and say, hmm, they're weird, that's different, what's going on there? And they get to see the character of God. Same is true of the church. You and I are called to be weird. Works out really well for a lot of us, right? Not that kind of weird. We're called to be a peculiar people, set apart just like Israel, different from the world around us. Not blending in because we're a part of the promise. We're a part of the promise. 
And God is using all of that to bring glory to Himself. God's promises highlight His nature and character. God's promises highlight His nature and character. As He contrasts the warnings and the promises, as He contrasts His love and protection and compassion for His people when they come to Him in humility, that contrast is with His judgment of those who are not His people in their arrogance, who don't think they need God. See, it doesn't really matter what we believe. God's still God. Truth is still truth, whether I accept it or not. I will one day have to deal with it. God's promises highlight His nature and character. Lastly, we see God's promises give Him glory. God's promises give Him glory. I referenced Isaiah 9. I'm going to have you turn there briefly, and then we're going to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Isaiah chapter 9 sounds a lot like Handel's Messiah. There's a reason for that. God's prophecies through Isaiah are a double-edged sword. They are the highlight. They are the contrast. Showing His promises and His judgments. Isaiah prophesies doom. And yet he prophesies a Messiah who will make all things right. He prophesies the hardship, the suffering, the discipline against Israel. And yet he promises that God will still, still show mercy to Israel and keep every one of his promises. Verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. He has just talked about the exile. He's just talked about the punishment. There will be no more gloom. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. You may recognize that. We've been talking about it a lot in the book of Luke. This is where Jesus is from. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now, there's a lot of joyfulness here, right? There's a lot of heaviness as well. These prophecies are mixed together with the celebration of God's victory and also the harshness of what that victory will mean for those who are outside of God's people. You have enlarged their nation. Jump down to verse 4. For as, <clears throat> excuse me, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The deliverance of those who are oppressed means judgment to the oppressor. Verse 5, every warrior's boot in, used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Remember the promise God made to David? We see it here as well. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. But he's not done. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, bad things have happened, but we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can do this. Let's just rise up. Let's let's work together, guys. We're going to get it done. God says, who are you? When I make plans, that's how it's going to be. And no matter how strong you think you are, you have gone against me and you will be punished. And you will go through the suffering. 
But on the other side, when you can't do it anymore, you will see who I am. God's promises give him glory. The last verse for us. This is our memory verse for today as well. And I would encourage you to take it, take it in, commit it to memory, commit it to heart. Second Corinthians. <clears throat> Very first chapter, verse 20. We see that God has made promises to Abraham and Moses and Israel and David and Mary. This verse reminds us that God makes these same promises to us. Not every promise is for every person. When God makes a promise to Mary, that's for Mary. You and I are not going to give birth to Messiah. That's not how it works. But God makes promises for us as well. Notice 2 Corinthians 1.20 For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. I've included it in your program in the English Standard Version rather than, than the NIV. I think it works better for, for Bible memory. Here's the rendering there. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. That amen means I agree. It is so. Yes. I'm on board with this. Whenever we say amen, that's what we're saying. Saying, yes, I stand with this. I'm in agreement with this. Every promise of God for us is yes in Christ. Nothing overcomes those promises. And those promises draw us in and give us hope and confidence that we can reach out and say with gusto, amen and amen. We are on board with you, Lord. We will... We will embrace these promises. And it's for His glory. What, what, why does it matter? The promises of God matter to us because they demonstrate that we can trust Him. God sent a Savior because He promised to send a Savior. So Jesus came to save us because God keeps His promises. That's really important for us to recognize because if God doesn't keep His promises, then what are we doing here? To borrow from Paul, we are to be pitied above all people if God doesn't keep His promises. When God promised that Jesus would die and be raised the third day, if He didn't, then all of this is a waste. Then we can't trust God at all. If one part of the Scripture is false, this is why it's so important to have a high view of Scripture. If one part of God's Word isn't true, isn't the inspired Word of God, if it fails, then how can we trust any of it? That's a tough question. And this is why I'm hanging my entire being on the reality of God's Word being authoritative inerrant and infallible. I hope you can as well. It makes a difference in our daily lives. Because when I'm facing trials and I know that God keeps His promises, I sent some of you recently text from Isaiah 43 when God says, when you go through the fire, I'll be with you. When you pass through the floodwaters, they won't pass over. They won't uh, roll over you. You won't be overcome. He doesn't say you won't face the fire. In fact, specifically says you will. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. God's promise to stay with us stands, and He can't lie. It's not in His nature. So everything that we face today, whatever you're struggling with, whatever that might be, the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And you can trust Him with that. But it requires a response. In Acts 13, 
Paul is speaking at Pisidian Antioch and he's telling the people there of the promises of God to the Jews. And how God did this and he kept his promise. And he did this and he kept his promise. And he did this. All these things that God promised throughout the history of Israel. And he gets to Christ and he explains that God promised this Messiah. And he kept his promise in Christ. But there's a warning that goes with it. And you must respond to him. Otherwise, those promises fall against you instead of for you. You and I need to respond to Christ in faith. If you're not in that relationship, if you haven't given yourself completely to it, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. I'd love to help you enter that relationship. If you have, if you're in it, then think about the nature and character of God. And if you want to have a bigger faith, then you've got to know more about God's promises, don't you? And the better you know God's promises, someone has said there's 7,000 promises of God in Scripture. I don't know, I'm not counting them. I don't have time for that. But if you know 7,000 promises of God, you can have a 7,000 promise faith. If you only know seven promises of God, then you're only going to have a seven promise faith. You want to be stronger? You want to trust Him more? You want to be able to handle stuff better? Get in the Word. As you celebrate this Advent season, recognize that we are talking about a God who keeps His promises. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the reality that You are a promise maker and a promise keeper. That the fact that we have our Savior means that you keep your promises. He is the greatest evidence of all that you always keep your promises. Father, help us to cling, to hold unswervingly to the, to the hope that we profess, the faith we claim to have. Help us to grip it, to hold on, even when it's dark, even when it's hard, because we know that you, as the promise maker, are faithful. Keep your word at all times. Lord, teach us to stand on your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.